Welcome to Patient Preferred Presents. On this amazing new show, we will be introducing you to some of today's top physicians and leaders in the healthcare industry while sharing new discoveries, medical procedures, expert advice, and answering all of your healthcare concerns. So stick around. You don't want to miss today's episode. Hello and welcome to Patient Preferred Presents. My name is Jay McFarland, and today I'm very excited to introduce you to Dr. Robert Carney. He's a notable cardiologist treating patients at Tyler Cardiovascular Consultants, an innovative cardiovascular services practice. Dr. Carney is board certified in cardiovascular disease and internal medicine. His impressive professional journey spanning four decades has been instrumental in the development of new treatments for various cardiovascular diseases. Well, doctor, it's a real pleasure to have you on the show today. I'm I'm really anxious and excited to hear about your background. I love talking to doctors and finding out when they decided to be a doctor. Was this a thing like when you were a little kid and somebody asked you, what do you want to be when you grow up? Did you say doctor? And if not, how did you get to that point? You know, I worked, um, I worked several jobs and one of them was for a, a good friend of mine. His dad was a physician. And the more I was around the guy, the more I admired him. He had a lot of the attributes that we value, hardworking, perseverance. Um, and I came to sort of, I think he became my mentor. Uh, having said that, as we went through uh, looking at the availability of all the options, it was like I found I, I had a real love for science. And I think I like to pursue knowledge for its own sake. I'm interested in stuff, just stuff, random stuff. So I think that I was drawn into the area by the doctor. And then once I got into the area, I, I love the biological sciences and physiology and all, all the stuff of it. And I think that put me one step closer in the direction of what do I do to use this stuff? What, how can I do this stuff? And really, in a, in a real 30,000 foot view, really part of medicine, now not the, not the art side, but the science side is getting pieces. You have to know the pieces, obviously, that's the science, and fitting them together to form, to, to form a, an answer to a puzzle. Now, part of that's also the art of getting the information and the art of presenting the information. Different, that's a different subject. But the pieces are, are the scientific basis. You know, every disorder of every step in, in physiology has a disease name for it. So you'd go and you find disorders of the Krebs cycle. They all have they all have names for them. And so the science side was very methodical. It's very interesting. And I'm still you know, one of the things about cardiology. It continues to evolve. It has new stuff and it has new recommendations. It has new stuff virtually every year, virtually. And so this practice, what we do today, doesn't resemble what we started off doing. It's completely, it's completely different. So I think the knowledge and information appealed to me, the body of information, the sciences appealed to me. And then the way to utilize that was, was, you know, take care of people. So 
I grew up in a restaurant. I, I like people. I, I genuinely like to visit with them. And so I think that was an offshoot of that. Once you get into medical school, you have to get into medical school, which is another problem. But <laughs> once you get into medical school, you're exposed to a wide variety of a lot of information and a, a, across a wide spectrum. And some of that, you know, just piques your interest. And so that's the areas you're drawn into as a specialty. Yeah, I love this idea of, of puzzle solving. It's like you're the Sherlock Holmes of of medicine in some ways. Uh, I hadn't heard a doctor talk about it in that way, that you're always trying to unravel a puzzle. Talk about that a little bit more. Well, um, based on, um, it, it's certainly not brilliance. I, I would say that's the last thing it is. I think it's a matter of uh, approximating you get the information. There's several um, black boxes on this that I can't explain. But you, if you talk to the patient and you listen to the patient and you really take what they say and interpret it, you say what order they say it in with what intensity. If they have a loved one there, you look and you kind of check out what the significant other says. You're going to get a sort of a rough ghost-like image of the problem. And you don't know what that consists of, but you kind of know it's either over here or it's over there. And so that enables you to start making some um, uh, artful questions about things that help to draw it out, like what time does it come on? How long does it last? What brings it on? What bring... And then through experience, you realize a lot of times it's medicine and over-prescribed medicine. We have to change the medicine and drop the medicine. And I think if you take those pieces together in a, in a constructive sense, you've got the, the interview process where you're talking to the patient. The biggest overlooked part is no one listens to the patient. They just check a bunch of boxes and go on. But listening to the patient, and then you're able to rank order their problems about what they think is worse. And with the with their worst problem, other things that go with it, sometimes that points a picture in the direction. Sometimes it gives you the diagnosis, but um, then you can go to, you know, um, polishing the apple, kind of getting more information about talking to them and, and going into some specific things that might, that might help to uh, suggest the problem or would mitigate against that as a diagnosis. Then last you get to, okay, I've got, I think it's this, we should do A, B, and C. And then you have to explain to the patient why um, why you think that's the case. And, and explaining it to the patient, I think I'm better than fair at trying to explain it to them why, why I think this is a problem and why I think, why don't we try this? Look, look, why don't we try this? You stop this medicine, you go, you go two weeks, you check your blood pressure, check your pulse, see if you have a spell, when you have a spell, check your blood pressure, check your pulse, and I'll see you back in two weeks. We'll look at the test that we did. We'll look at the blood work. We'll see where we're at. I love that you talk about about listening. I, I feel so often that people feel like their relationship with their doctor is just get in, you know, get some type of prescription and, and get out. But you really talk about this process of listening and getting to know them. I, I'm not going to yell. I promise <laughs> not to yell. It's a lost art. It just isn't done. It just isn't done, and it's not valued, and it's it's to the detriment 
of what used to be a, a, a kind and noble profession, I think now is checkboxing and doing stuff and, and going from there. So I think it's, it's, um, it's really the worst of the worst in terms of the opportunities that you have that you fritter away. Listen to the patients. Uh, you can do that in a pretty uh, constrained form. You don't have to listen to them for an hour. You know, usually we spend about five minutes talking about the problem, and then we'll talk about, you know, horses or the weather for five minutes too. I mean, uh, which is sort of part of that is also, uh, it's not completely the waste because while we're doing that, I'm also con still constraining different things in the diagnosis. I'm getting that ghost image to kind of solidify up. Um, and, and it's good for me emotionally just to be able to visit because I, like I like to talk. So, well, it sounds like you you have a great bedside manner for sure. I'm I'm curious how it feels when you like when you know that you've you've nailed it, you figured it out, you you're putting this puzzle together, and you prescribe something or some action, and they listen, and it actually works. Well, the, the you know we have we surprisingly until COVID, which is kind of out of our our bailiwick, but. Until COVID, it's very unusual for us to have patients die. Mm. It's very, we have a room, we have a wedding room full of old codgers that are 85 and 90. And, and you know, our duty and, and honor and privilege is to carry forward and take care of them and optimize their, their quality of life and how they feel, which is a challenge, as you know. But having said that, the, the um, emotional toll of having people die is is a legitimate cost. There's a legitimate burden, a legitimate weight on, on the shoulders because we're not used to having people die. Mm -hmm. So that cost or that weight or that burden is there and to some variable degree every week. The flip side of that is it's, it's not necessarily like uh, getting on an airplane and going to Antarctica, but it feels good when you you're, you've got an operational diagnosis. I think it's this. I think it's this. And there's there's I don't know how many things there are because there's a lot of stuff. But there are a number of things when you say A and I'm thinking B, it's like that's it. Drop the mic. It's mm -hmm. that's it's and it's a good emotional paycheck. You know, it's like I got it. I got you. I got this. I understand what it is. And we don't need any testing. Here's what you do. So, and that's, you know, that's fun. It, I, and I, I think I kind of know the answer, but what, what most excites you about what you do? What gets you up in the morning where you're like, yes, I get to go and do this today? Well, if we strip away, you know, the veneer, everyone hates the computers. No one hates computers more than me. <laughs> you know, I hate, I hate the fact that I can't control my process. I started back in the day when, I had one nurse and one front desk gal, and we did things my way, and it was that way. And now corporate medicine, it's its large volumes and large numbers, and everything is large. So being able to have the patients into the, come into the room is sort of the salmon swimming upstream. You know, if we get them in the room, it's perfect in the room. It's perfect. How you doing? What's going on? Hey, how's your sister? You know, she had cancer last time. And they'll say, well, you know, how's so-and-so? A lot of them will say, I was in the hospital when you had your twins in 1988. Or, you know, I remember, you know, remember that when you're, uh, you, you hurt your foot and you were on crutches. So 
that in the room is perfect. In the room is perfect. When you step out to do the paperwork, not so perfect. But in the room is perfect. I love the room with the paper. Yeah, that's fantastic. You mentioned how things have changed uh, since you started. And I know at Tyler Cardiovascular Consultants, you guys are always on the cutting edge technology. How have things changed and how do you how do you stay on top of all of the new technology? Well, you read and you read and you go to conferences and you read and you talk to your peers and you read. Um, we do a lot. We do a lot of research, which exposes you the technology before it's available. And some of that technology, frankly, doesn't work. And some works very well. It's set up that if it doesn't work, it does no worse than your best technology. You have to demonstrate, you know, uh, uh, achievement and, and betterment for the item that you're doing to be approved. So it, you do, you're thinking uh, actively as opposed to it's, uh, there's never a dull moment because you're engaged. I mean, it's like a chainsaw that's running all the time. You're thinking about doing X, Y, and Z. The um, research helps us to advance that frontier. And then in the meantime, you're still taking care of the patients with you know, new medicines. There's new medicines and, and they're not um, they're not small medicines. They're, they're huge improvements, you know, in, in both lifestyle and in terms of survival. But yet what, you, what you love best are these people that come in and they've got 20 problems and they've got just a whole bunch of stuff wrong with them. And they're fighting each of these problems. You help them fight the battle with their heart. You've got to work as best you can with that problem because, you know, they've got rheumatoid arthritis and they've got other issues and you want to keep them on the road, kind of keep them up and around. So it's a, it's sort of a joint, you know, arm to arm. Let's go. Let's try this on this and see if we can get it a little bit better. And you realize a lot of these people are spirited. They have a lot of miles in the car. Mm. You know, they got to go. They got a lot of door dings. So they just need a good mechanic. Right. And that's that's who well, you are. Either that, or you can find someone who can powder coat it and cover it up so they don't see them. But it's an issue, and I admire the spirit. I love the I love the patients. They generally, you know, they they want to get better. They're willing to work. Most of them are reasonably compliant about their medicines. We in turn try and be. We don't have a big rank order of let's do let's do impossible stuff and see if you can do it. It's you know keep the medicines to twice a day. So you can remember it and, and try and make things workable for the patient and, and sort of find a pathway they can follow without having to climb over a bunch of rocks. Yeah, I, I think that's important that it's something that they can do, they can remember, and and so that's, you know, as frictionless as possible. When I explain to people, you know, we're going to start this real low, so don't look for like a major change. But if you notice you take it and you feel better for a few hours, and then later on, you feel worse. That tells me it's probably working. When you come back, we'll look at maybe increasing the the dosage or the frequency, and we'll you know we'll work it out. Very good. Now I know uh, you you mentioned uh, you know new research, and I know you you've spearheaded several clinical trials, and you continue to do so. Talk a little bit about those trials and kind of the process. It sounds like it's more puzzle, you know, more more you know, trying to figure out the puzzles, but projecting forward a little bit. I think it's, it's more like target shooting. Mm. I think you have an idea which direction you want to do. 
you want to do this direction that involves, for example, the the how a stent performs. So you take all the stuff that's known about stents and you distill it into a question. If I have this platform, is this platform a better configuration or is this drug a better drug to drug, you know, drug coated stents? Is that a better drug? And we're going to take this vehicle and we're going to test it against the best in the world in a randomized trial, which has its own rules and, and it keeps it um, pure where it's not um, biased by any intentional or unintentional bias. And then you compare the two. And at the end of the, at the, end of the uh, day, of course, it's months, not days. But at the end of the day, which, which of these is better or are they comparable? And so that's the business question. And obviously, in case you haven't figured it out, the, the drug companies make a bunch of money on that because they get new drugs approved. But the new drugs can be revolutionary, too. Mm-hmm. And they become the standard of care. That's really what they're looking for, is being able to say that they they came up with it, they developed it, they made it. You tried it in research; it worked really, really well. And now it's part of regular therapy. We've got innumerable drugs uh, dating dating all the way back to '87 that are now commonly used that were researched when we started. Then it became accepted. Then it became preferred. That's got to be an exciting process. Is there any clinical research that you've done that really stands out to you that you're like, wow, that was that that was an amazing discovery and you've watched it kind of go forward and save lives? Well, there's the big and the small. We did a study on heart attacks and the, the medicine used to be used to be uh, I can I can date myself. It used to be we would sit and watch a heart attack and give the medicine. And that's all we had to do. And then we evolved into doing pictures or catheterization. Then we evolved into doing pictures and giving medicine. And then once we started down the medication trial, we stopped the heart attack, which is fairly dramatic if you're in that business. So we did a comparison of how to give the medicine. And one of our um, early um, contributions was front loading or giving more medicine initially or quickly to cause lysis or, or dissolving that clot. And that was back in the 80s. And that was revolutionary in the sense it was a very um, dramatic. is a dramatic study. Now, in terms of use utility, in terms of utility, we were one of many hundreds of centers that did early data on heart failure. And at the time, um, Heart failure was a lot like a dog out in the back barking. You didn't know what it was. I mean, you, you knew kind of what it looked like, but the therapy was like, well, we don't, you know, we'll try this or try that. And these basically codified the guideline-based medical therapy that everybody uses now. And at first there were ACE inhibitors and then there were beta blockers. And now it's become pretty codified. And we contributed in a small, in a small way to that. Uh, advancement of knowledge. And some of these are uh, important in magnitude. We did a, a tiny bit of the work, um, but I think all of it cons- uh, constructs to the betterment of the process. You kind of give back to the, to the community and the patients. We're able to offer them better cutting edge stuff. Sometimes you do things and it doesn't turn out like it was going to work out so well. And sometimes it does. 
<laughs> yeah, right. You, you don't know. That's the whole point. That's why we call it research, right? Right. Yeah, that's what we call it. That's what the science says in the, in the research department. That's why we call it research. Yeah, fantastic. I'm, I'm curious what you think about, and maybe this is asking for too much of a generalization, but do we, do we as your patients, as Americans, do we take heart health seriously enough? I, I throw that back and say, what do you mean by seriously? Because well, I, I mean, have Cochrane. I have quartiles. I have one quartile that exercises most days, eats pretty well, and and they do their they do their medications awfully well. And you know, we call them good patients. Mm. And while they still may have the luck of the draw and have bad luck because of their family genes and some of the consequences that happen, no fault of theirs, they're doing everything right. Yeah, I have vegans who have stents because it's not just the diet, obviously. Mm -hmm. They're born with bad genes and they're dealt bad cards and they try and play the best they can. And and you love those people. I mean, you, you obviously identify with them and they're good patients. They generally um, do much, much better than they would have done but they don't do as well as necessarily you would want them to do, you know, because, you know, bad things happen to nice people. Then you've got a group of people that are pretty good about medicines. They, they miss them once in a while. They go off their diet uh, periodically, um, periodically being anything from every 20 minutes to once a week. But those people are, are you know, they're working hard. They're doing the best they can. We're all human. And that's just, that's the, uh, a fair number of the constituency. Then you have people that really don't care and really don't take their medicines and they have the expected consequences. They're, um, they frequently have uh, significant issues that are not always innocuous or they can, be, they can be really bad issues. And you do the best, you know, you empathize with them. We're all human and they're doing the best they can. They can do better and we try and give them a, uh, I'm not much of a yeller. You know, I don't, I don't yell at people if they don't, I'm not going to, I'm, you know, I'm not the, I'm not the food police. I'm not going to go to their house and make sure they put their fork down and don't eat stuff. They've got to have some buy-in and, and I do the best I can to get them in a sense to really kind of understand the process and then whatever they can, whatever they can buy into in terms of self-control. And I also tell them, you know, there's what's different from, I think a little bit, maybe, maybe. I'm not sure, but I don't, I'm not much of an abstinent person. I, you know, I don't think that people could just diet and not eat. I think our society's grown from millennia, you know, sitting around a fire breaking bread and, and chewing breadsticks. You've got to find a way to make it work for you, which is better foods, better choices, better choices where you're getting a bowl of salad, not a bowl of macaroni, better food choices. And, and think about limiting your uh, available uh, amount that you're eating and manage the process. It's, it's a lot like if you've ever been in, in East Texas, you're not going to control the water. When it rains 12 inches, the water's going to go where the water's going to go. You can influence it, but you can't make it do anything. And I don't think people's diets can be just made into, we want you to do this and you're going to do it. You have to make it where it's workable for them and what works for them may not work for somebody else, but it all involves, it, it comes back to the same thing. Uh, appropriate choices, you have to choose right, 
I can't choose for you. I'm not the food police. Uh, you have to eat less. You don't lose, you know, you don't lose weight in the gym. You lose weight in the kitchen. You need a smaller spoon. And, and those little steps add up if the people do it. Absolutely. Now, doctor, you've been honored and named a patient preferred cardiologist of the year for your obvious expertise and for achieving excellence in patient care. Talk a little bit about what that means to you. But all this is mediated by the patients. I mean, when you look at when you look at Google Doc, I've got 85 star reviews and you know the patients are what it's about. And the patients, I think now we have a more uh, I think it's more socially responsible media and they're willing to go out and yelp somebody when they're not happy. But I think there's also the flip side. I think they're willing to um, talk to people and put a recommendation in if there's somebody they really like. Yeah, very good. Now, your bio says you're affiliated with LifeLink. Uh, that's home telemonitoring. I've seen a lot about it. I've seen the commercials. Talk about that relationship a little bit and why it's important to you. Well, we came up, we came up with um, a mechanism to approach um, you know, what, what's called the transition care. We, we got pretty good at the hospital side. And then this is a scope of discussion that's beyond this, but population health dynamics are very useful and they're a different kind of, they're a different kind of medicine. They're medicines, the, it's a kind of medicine that's done for the thousands and thousands of people and particularly higher risk people like diabetics or heart failure patients who have a higher incidence of problems. So you know you're gonna see them more and how do you influence that? You can do different things. We developed a process where the patient was treated at home with, uh, with a monitoring, com um, monitoring unit and a, and a um, case manager and we dropped our readmission rate in the hospital from 17% back in 2014, down to less than 2%. Mm. So the, re the reason wasn't anything other than just listening to the patient and talk, reaching out to them, as opposed to letting them go on, get sicker and sicker and sicker, and, and then go to the hospital. What do you want to do? Let's go to the hospital. So this was an intervention aimed at, at keeping up with the patient. And the models are all going that way. All the models are going to helping the patient take care of themselves. Because when you do that, when you get the potato chips out of the house and you get the Fritos out of the house, they have less salt, so they have less failure, less failure, less high blood pressure. Yeah, and that's a population dynamic that we're going to see more. And the government's going to pay. They can't really get to, they can get down to see what they think a routine admission is for A, B, or C. But really, the the, the I think, and I'm not, at all considered anything other than an interested observer. I have no expertise other than the fact that I've had a pick and shovel in my hand for 40 years. But I, I do think their goal is to do populations of 60, 80, 90,000 and look at how they can do better care and make the cost cheaper. And that's that self-care is going to be um, the easy way to enhance the self-care is to have somebody call them and talk to them. So that's kind of a um, it's a little offshoot. It's a little sideline thing that's interesting. Well, I and I, I just think about the technology that's available now. We're all starting to wear wearables that are tracking our our heart rate, and you know, and can know if we fell down. And if you fell down, your phone asked you, 
Do you need to call 911? Are you okay? I mean, these are amazing advancements, and and I'd love your perspective on those. Well, um, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm sort of a contrarian uh, on the sense that we use uh, stuff like these remote monitoring um, apps all the time for that specific issue. The meat potatoes of our stuff are you check your blood pressure, check your pulse, and check your weight every day. Mm-hmm. And then you ask, and you answer two or three questions. Can you lay down or do you have to lay in a pillow? Are your feet swollen or not? And boom, you're done. I mean, that's it, it's simplistic to the absurd, but it's also extremely, extremely applicable. And it, it, it really covers a huge, it doesn't tell you why the feet are swollen. It doesn't tell you the why, but it, it tells you that, you know, the house is on fire. And we're, we're trying to put the fire out before it gets too big. So in a sense, technology is useful, but it can't replace common sense and, and, a, and a one-to-one contact. Just another tool that, that you can use with all of them. Maybe a, maybe a cooler tool, maybe a fancier tool. Maybe people like to do it because it's technologically advanced. As long as they, you know, as long as they, it's sort of like having a meal with, without a meat and potato. It's like... Nobody cares if you got green beans if you don't have anything to eat. And if you just take care of your basic stuff, that goes a long ways on health maintenance. It really does. So, Absolutely. Doctor, just one last question for you. Do you have a proudest accomplishment? Something as you look back over the 40 years, you say uh, that was really something that I hold, that I, that I treasure, that experience or that accomplishment? Well, I have uh, a series of individual patients that by themselves are remarkable, but I'm probably proudest of the fact you've been married 48 years. Because mm. I wouldn't marry me. I'm too high maintenance. <laughs> and I'm not a bad guy, but I'm just too high maintenance. And the fact that someone would put up with me is a, is a high accolade. So that's my best achievement. In terms of individual patients, there's been patients along the way that um, I've taken care of. I had, I had just had one recently that passed away that was put in hospice. And when you're put in hospice, uh, your routine medical care is suspended. And, and I continue to see the patient. He lived like four years and uh, they, he came off hospice. But I think individual uh, achievements across the boards are, are referable back to the patient. It's, it's this patient or that patient that had this or that, um, I think. But, but the, what I'm proudest of is being married that long. Mm. Well, I love it. You you talk about your marriage and your patience. It's all about relationships, isn't it? Should be. Yeah. Unfortunately, we, yeah. we still have we still have to get the computer to work and, and all that routine <laughs> routine stuff. But well, doctor, it's been a real pleasure getting to know you. Thank you for for all you've done, and especially for focusing on the doctor patient relationship. I feel like you probably have had a lot of breakthroughs because you're willing to take the time and listen and be that, that cheerleader slash coach along the way. That's, that's reasonable. And I think if you listen, you learn. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you so much, doctor. Once again, I want to thank Dr. Robert Carney for joining us. I think it's pretty obvious why he has received this incredible honor and why he's been so effective as a doctor and a researcher. I love that he emphasized the patient doctor relationship and how listening is a lost art. Once again, my name is Jay McFarland, and I hope you have enjoyed this edition of Patient Preferred Presents.